It has long been said that biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. When you and I peek and peer into the pages of the Bible, we don't find examples of how we ought to live. We find illustrations of how we actually live. Last Sunday, we began an eight-part sermon series, uh, walking through the book of Judges. It's built upon a Bible study that we did a few years ago in The Gathering. As you walk through Judges, you see a description of fallen people and a faithful God. The theme of the entire book is found in the last line of the sacred text. At that time, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. In other words, there was spiritual anarchy throughout the nation. Love for the Lord had grown cold. Hunger for the holy word of God had waned. Morality had evaporated. And the desire to please the Lord had been seared by self-gratification. The Israelites were on a vicious cycle, a cycle that was repeated all throughout the book of Judges that would start with disobedience of the people of God. That disobedience would bring discipline from the Lord. The end result of that discipline would be that God's people would cry out in despair. God would deliver them by raising up a judge. There would be a momentary period of delight and peace as long as that judge lived. But once the judge died, then the cycle would start all over again, disobedience that leads to God's discipline that results in human despair as they cry out to the Lord. And God raises up a judge to deliver them, and there is momentary delight as long as that judge lives. Today, I want to introduce you to one of the first judges that's recorded in the book. I want to entitle this sermon, The Lord's Lefty. If you are left-handed, this is your sermon. If you're left-handed, this is your story. It's found in Judges chapter 3. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Judges chapter 3, I want to begin to read in verse 12, and I'll conclude in verse 30. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. After the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and, and he gave them a deliverer, Ahud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ahud had made a double-edged sword, about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. And after Ahud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet, and all of his attendants left him. Ahud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace, and he said, I have a message from God for you. The king rose from his seat. Ahud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ahud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ahud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, 
He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key, unlocked them, and there they saw their Lord fall onto the floor. He was dead. While they waited, Ahud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sireh. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous, all strong, not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Our story begins with an ominous statement. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The evil in the eyes of the Lord calls the Lord to give Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. It was C.H. Bergen who said that God will not let his children sin successfully. You may think you're pulling the wool over God's eyes, but you're not. Your disobedience will bring about discipline from the Lord. It'll either invite his discipline or your own destruction. But in the words of R.G. Lee, there's always payday someday. You cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. If you're listening to me today and you're traveling down a path of disobedience, if you're living a lifestyle that's contrary to the Lord, if you're doing something or about to do something that is defiant and against his will, then please hear me when I tell you to repent. Today, I urge you to repent. Don't continue down that path of disobedience. You think you're going to get away with it. You think that if you've done it once and God hasn't struck you dead, you can do it twice, a third time, a fourth time, as many times as you want to. You can act as if you have no king and everyone does as he sees fit. My, my friend, I want to tell you that God sees all things. You cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. You can try all you want. You can try to get away with it, but you won't. Because God never lets his children sin successfully. In our story, he raised up a pagan king, the king of the Moabites. His name was Eglon. And Eglon is not a good guy. He is not a boy scout. And yet even a crooked king is an effective tool in the hand of God. God can use anything at his disposal to grab your attention. And in our story, God uses a pagan king by the name of Eglon. Eglon was the king of the Moabites. He garnered the support of the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Together, that three-headed monster attacked the city of Palms, which is called Jericho. They overtook Jericho, and they ruled Israel for 18 years. I don't know about you, but 18 years sounds like a long time. That's how long it took me to graduate high school. That's how long it takes most of us to graduate high school, although some of you take 19, 20, 21 years. But for most of us, it's about an 18-year journey to go from first grade to 12th grade. By the time we graduate, we're 18 years old. That's a long time. That's a lot of life. For 18 long years, the Moabites ruled over the Israelites. 
To add injury to insult, uh, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, they were all distant cousins of the Israelites. If you know anything about their origin, you know that the Moabites and the Ammonites were conceived by an incestuous hookup between Lot and his two daughters. The story is told in Genesis chapter 19. You fast forward a few more years, Genesis chapter 36, and we are told that Esau had a son. That son had a concubine. And from the relation of Esau and that concubine, the Amalekites were conceived. So all three of these groups, they have disgusting origins. Whenever you step outside of the Word of God, whenever you step outside of the will of God, there is always destruction looming around the bend. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, they all went and attacked Jericho. They overtook this city and, and, and the entire nation, and they ruled there for 18 years. Eventually, God's people cried out in despair. Can I tell you, friend, that God always hears you when you cry out in despair? Always. When you get to the point where you say, enough is enough, I've made a mess of things. I have royally messed up, and God, I need you to come in and fix up my mess up. I need your help. When you cry out in despair, God always listens, he always hears, and he always responds. In our story, he responded by raising up a judge, a military leader in this case. Not all judges are military leaders, but in this case it certainly is. His name is Ahud. Now, probably the best way to pronounce it in Hebrew is Ehud. Uh, but here in Alabama, it's just Ahud. And so Ahud, the judge, was raised up by God. And God gives uh, Ahud a task to go and to deliver the Israelites from the Moabite uh, overtaking. Now, Ahud is described in a unique way. He's simply described as a left-handed Benjamite. It's interesting, isn't it? In fact, when you read that statement, it kind of jumps off the page. It's not the normal way to introduce anybody. I have never introduced myself by telling you my dominant hand. I have never said to you, hello, my name is Davin. I'm a right-handed preacher. I mean, that's not how we talk. That's not how we introduce each other. That's not how we introduce ourselves. And if it's true in our day, it's also true in that day. This is a weird way to introduce somebody. This is Ahud, the left-handed Benjamite. I mean, why would God tell us that he's raising up a South Paul Savior? Why would the Lord tell us something about the dominant hand of this Benjamite whose name is Ahud? It seems so insignificant. It seems so trivial. But yet, I think it's very significant that God would introduce him in this way. If you look at a place like 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 2, you'll find this statement. That the kinsmen of Saul... The tribe of Benjamin, they could shoot an arrow and throw a stone, both right-handed and left-handed. In other words, the soldiers of the Benjamites, they were ambidextrous. They were just as strong right-handed as they were left-handed. They were known by this trait. Some of the most skilled warriors in all of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. 
Because if you're in hand-to-hand combat, it is a tremendous advantage to be just as skilled right-handed as you are left-handed. It is, it is very powerful for you to be able to shoot an arrow, to throw a punch, to sling a stone just as effectively with your right hand as you are your left hand. Now, most people today, in fact, 90% of people in the world are right-handed. It's probably true in that day as well. So to be able to be just as adept left-handed as you are right-handed is a tremendous advantage whenever you're duking it out, whenever you're going to war, whenever you're in battle, especially hand-to-hand combat. For God to describe uh, this man named Ahud as a left-handed Benjamite is to say something significant about his condition. Condition. He's not your average Benjamite. He can't do what other Benjamites can do. He's only left handed. There's something about his right hand. I think that it's deformed. I think that it's disabled. I think that somehow it may even be dismembered. There's something about his right hand that causes the author of our text to say, this one that God raised up, he's only a left-handed Benjamite. He's not like your average warrior of the Benjamite. He's not right-handed and left-handed. He's only left-handed. In other words, if God had put to the vote of the Benjamites, who do you think I'm going to raise up to deliver my people? Ahud would not even have made the ballot. His name would not even be found on the ballot. He's one who would have been overlooked, shoved aside, pushed away. He would have been ignored. Why? Because he's left-handed and he's only left-handed. There's something wrong with his right hand. So this man would have been overlooked. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is what the world trashes, God treasures. What the world trashes, God treasures. God's been doing this all throughout the page of the Bible. God uses the most unlikely of people to accomplish his great work. Stop and think with me just for a moment. God used Abraham, who was a liar. God used Joseph, who was abused. God used Elijah, who was suicidal. He used Rahab, who was a prostitute. He used Jonah, who was a racist. He used Peter, who was impulsive. He used Thomas, who was a doubter. He used Zacchaeus, who was a thief. He used Martha, who worried a lot. And he used Paul, who was a convict. So regardless of the liability, regardless of the label that slapped upon you, God can still use you. That's the point of the story. That's why we are given this detail that Ahud was a left-handed Benjamite, yet he was called of God for such a time as this. God can use anybody he wants to use for his service. Don't let your label, don't let your liability, don't let your setback keep you from serving the Lord. Here in our story, Eglon is raised or uh, Ahud is raised to approach Eglon, and Ahud is given the annual tribute. A tribute was an annual tax that the Moabites held over the Israelites just so they would protect them from other enemies. And so every year, the Israelites would get together this tax, these finances, this money, this tribute, and they would go and pay it to the king of Moab. Eglon was chosen. Uh, Ahud, I'm sorry, Ahud was chosen 
to take this tribute. So we're told that this left-handed Benjamite takes the tribute. We are given a few other details, aren't we? That he had uh, fashioned uh, a dagger, a double-edged sword. It was about 18 inches long. He placed it on his right thigh under his clothing. Maybe on his inner thigh, maybe on his outer thigh, but probably, perhaps, his inner thigh. He placed it there, covered it with clothing, and he made his way to pay the tribute. We're told about the king of Moab, Eglon, is that he was very fat. Now, that seems rude, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's not very nice. I mean, just to look at somebody and say, well, that person's just fat. Not just fat, but very fat. That doesn't seem very nice. Uh, but if you ask the question, how fat was Eglon? I don't know. But he was very fat. It's like asking the question, uh, how short was Zacchaeus? I don't know, but he was a wee little man. How beautiful is Bathsheba? I don't know. But the Bible says she was very beautiful. I take that to mean she's a knockout. So when it comes to this very fat man, how fat is he? Oh, he's fat. He is grotesquely obese. He is fat. I mean, he never passed a Twinkie. I mean, he ate everything in sight. I mean, he is very, very fat. It seems rude until you read the rest of the story. So Ahud comes. He brings the tribute. He gives it to all the men that had gathered with him to carry the tribute uh, they were uh, delivered it, and then they went back. Uh, even Ahud turned around and walked back. He made his way uh, to where he could see the idols. And I think those idols were uh, kind of a, a visual for him of just how bad everything had gotten. The Israelites are not supposed to build up idols, these pagan images of Moab. They're not supposed to build up these idols. We're supposed to be worshipers of Yahweh himself, the one true God. And yet these idols, these these. Images of, of stone and, and wood. These things our people are bowing down to. So he turns around. He goes back to the king. And he says, I've got a message for the king. I'm quite confident that Ahud passed through the security detail with really no questions asked. For starters, he's a left-handed Benjamite. His right hand is probably deformed. So... Uh, those that are on the detail of the king, they would have said, what can this guy do? It's not like he can hurt anybody. He's a left-handed Benjamite. So we'll just let him pass. If, if any of those uh, servants, if they would have had a sneaking suspicion that something might be up, and if they had frisked him, they, they probably just out of habit would have really paid attention to the left side. Because most right-handed people would reach to the left thigh area to pull out a dagger. So if they frisk him, they probably would have been intentional to do it on the left side. But, you know, his right hand's deformed. What's he going to do? And probably out of habit, they would not have checked the right thigh. And even if they had checked the right thigh, they would have done it very superficially as to not get to the inside of the thigh where the dagger might be located. And so he would have passed by with flying colors. Nobody would have really stopped him. In fact, the king, he, he's not very intimidated either because he orders quiet, which means everybody has to leave. So now it's just one-on-one, -on -one. mano a mano. It's just Ahud and Eglon. 
It's the servant of the Lord. It's the king of Moab. And Ahad simply says, I've got a message for you from God. The king is religious enough to know that, wait a minute, if this is from God, I need to perk up and listen. So he begins to push himself up out of his seat. Now remember, he's a very fat man. It takes very fat men a long time to get up out of their seat. So he's struggling and straining just to get up out of the seat. I want you to visualize a slow motion action thriller when you see the next scene. It is Ahud who dramatically flips back the clothing. And with his left hand, he reaches in, slow motion mind you, reaches in, pulls out the dagger from his inner thigh. And then he turns towards the king and does, Slow motion, by the way. The blade goes all the way through the fat belly of the king. There's so much thrust, gusto. It pokes out the back. The handle gets buried in the fat. And Ahud does not pull the sword back out. He just lets go and pulls his hand out of the goop. And then all of a sudden, the fat of the belly covers even the handle so that if you look at the king, you can't tell that he's just been stabbed to death. And then the divine assassin just walks back, turns around, shuts the door, and locks it. He walks down the palace steps. He sees some of the servants. See you later. See you next year. He gets back into his entourage, and off he goes. Well past the idols, he's making his way up to Ephraim to gather the troops, all before anybody knows what just happened in the summer palace of the king. Now the servants, they're waiting for the king to come back out, to give an order, to give some direction. They go up to the door of the summer palace, the upper room where he was staying. They check it, and it's locked. Apparently, that was a secret sign that if the door of the king was locked, that meant he was going to the bathroom. So just wait just a few minutes. The king will be back out. Because I tell you what, when you go to the bathroom, you probably lock your door. If you don't, you should. Especially if you're out in public, you need to lock the door when you go to the bathroom. So that was just kind of a customary sign that if you come up and the knob is locked, it just simply means that the king is going to the bathroom. So the servants are waiting. They look at each other and they say, he's he's just relieving himself. He's going to the bathroom. Look, I, I, I saw what he had for lunch. He may be in there for a while. I mean, that man can throw down on some food. And so we'll, we'll just wait. We'll wait for him. Because, you know, he really gets mad if he comes out to give an order and an edict and nobody's here. So we'll just wait. We'll just wait. And they waited and they waited. And they waited and they waited. So that the scripture says it was to the point of embarrassment. That was a long time. Now, can I ask you a real personal question? How long does it take you to go to the bathroom? I know it's really none of my business. But I just want you to think about this. I mean, if you've got to go number two, how long does that take? However long it takes you 
I want you to add about 20 minutes to it, okay? Because if however long it takes you, if you add another 20 minutes to it, you're beginning to get to the point of embarrassment. It's a long time. I'm embarrassed. You're embarrassed. He should be embarrassed. Everybody ought to be embarrassed. The door's locked. It's been locked for 30 minutes now. We have no idea why. Somebody go get the key. The spare key that we keep up there in the cupboard. Somebody go get the key. Something's happened to that poor man. So somebody goes and gets the key. They unlock the door. They go in and what do they see? They see their king dead on the floor. Now by now, before they can even sound the alarm, Ahud is gone. He's already made his way up to Ephraim. He's blown the trumpet. He's gathered the troops. He says, quick, boys, let's go down to the fords. Let's be there, uh, right there uh, where, where, where the Moabites are. And on that day, some 10,000 Moabites were killed. And they're not wimpy guys. The Bible describes them as vigorous, strong, able-bodied men. Not one passed through the ford. All of them were killed. And on that day, Ahud gave victory. So that on that day, the Moabites were made subject to the Israelites. And there was peace for 80 years. Ah, peace. Peace is not merely the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of the Lord. There was peace. Peace for 80 years. They've been held captive for 18 years. That's long enough. But now his peace is greater than their punishment, right? They have peace for 80 years. That's an interesting story, isn't it? It's a story that doesn't cause anybody to go to sleep. It's a story that keeps your interest. I mean, it's not a normal Bible story. Probably not a story that you tell your children at night right before you tuck them into bed. Now, children, let's listen to the story about how a big fat man died. I mean, that's not the story that you usually tell your kids. It's an interesting story. Why does God put this story in sacred script? Let me give you two takeaways, then I'll be done. The first takeaway is this, that in God's kingdom... God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary tasks. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary tasks. In this story, Ahud is the last one that should have been selected. He's the last one that should be chosen. I mean, he's from the right tribe, the Benjamites. You would think that a skilled warrior would come from them. Because a skilled warrior of the Benjamite is adept right-handed and left-handed. That's how they're trained. That's how they're abled. But not this guy. He's a left-handed Benjamite. God shouldn't use him. God should overlook him. There's got to be somebody else who's better suited to do this job. And the reality is there was nobody better suited to do this job because God was the one who sovereignly selected Ahud for the task. Friend, God has sovereignly selected you for his kingdom. He sovereignly selected you for his work. A disability becomes a possibility in the hands of God. Whatever disability you think you have, whatever shortcoming, whatever failure, whatever frailty, whatever blemish you think you have, 
whatever disability you think you have of yourself, that disability becomes a possibility in the hands of God. If you're so arrogant that you cannot think of a personal disability that you have, then you've got a far worse problem than any of the Israelites of Judges chapter 3. Everybody that I know, most people that I know, are at least self-aware to the point where they may not verbalize it to anybody else, but you know in your heart of hearts, I've got some limitations. I've got some disabilities. I've got some failures. I've, I've got some things that hold me back or maybe things that I've done or things that have happened to me. I've got some labels. I've got some liabilities. I've got some things that really probably disqualify me. So God, just pass over me and use somebody else. Friend, this story tells you that in God's kingdom, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary tasks for him. Don't let your setback keep you from serving the Lord. He saved you on purpose. He saved you for a purpose. He created you not by accident. You are treasured in the sight of God. He has redeemed you. He has sustained you. He has liberated you from your past. So, so you, my friend, you may think of yourself as the most ordinary person on the planet. Perfect. You're in the right spot to be used by God. It's the person who thinks himself to be extraordinary that can't be used by the Lord. A man or a woman, a boy or a girl who simply says, I'm nothing but ordinary, that's all I got. God says, that's all I need. Because you can do this for the glory of God, not for the glory of yourself. So the first point I would give you, the first takeaway is that in God's kingdom, ordinary people do extraordinary tasks. The second point that I'll tell you is simply this, that in God's kingdom, God delights in delivering his people. God delights in delivering his people. You can't read this story without a smirk on your face, can you? I mean, even as I tell the story, there's some of you, well, yeah, some of you still look stoic. I get it. You look that way every Sunday. But there are many of you, but there are many of you, and you got a smile on your face. you got a smirk on your face. I mean, for the Bible to call the guy a very fat man, for the handle to be sunk into his fat belly, then it vanishes. I mean, I mean, those are funny things. And for the service to say, well, he's in there relieving himself. I mean, he's going to the bathroom. I mean, it's an embarrassing amount of time. I mean, that, that's funny. And some of you, most of you, you read the story, you hear it retold, and you think to yourself, boy, that's, that's kind, of, it's kind of hilarious at points. You read the story and you almost get the impression that God delights in delivering his people. And what you've got a holy hunch about, I'm telling you, is a fact. God does delight in delivering his people. He delighted in Judges chapter 3. He delights today in delivering his people from whatever mess you may find yourself in. Now, let me stop right there and tell you, there are some people who have tried to indict God in this story and say that he has broken the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder. And God ordered the assassination of the Moabite king. And there's some people who come to this story and they try to indict God as breaking one of his own top ten commandments. Friends, let me tell you, for starters, uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, he was no good guy. He was a bad dude. 
Uh, but even though he was a bad dude, people say, but that's still no justification for slaughtering him and killing him. I mean, there are a lot of bad guys that God doesn't kill. Okay. Second thing I would tell you is that God is sovereign, which means that he never makes a mistake. He does all things well. Well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible affirms that. The Bible describes that, that God is sovereign, that everything declares his holiness. All of creation and everything in creation ought to declare the very holiness of God. The third thing I would say is that that phrase of the sixth commandment is a two-word Hebrew phrase, lo tirzak. It means no senseless slaughtering. What happens in Judges 3 is not senseless slaughtering. Senseless slaughtering is homicide, is suicide, it's, it's abortion, killing 65 million people over the last nearly 50 years by a nation. I mean, that's senseless slaughter. That's Tirzak. And when the sixth commandment is stated, low Tirzak, low means no, no senseless slaughtering. That's not what God is doing here. God is not indicted as a senseless slaughterer. No, no, he is delivering his people. He used a crooked king as an effective tool in his hand. He captured the attention of his people. And ours is a God who delights in the delivery of his people. He delights in the deliverance of you and me. So this is not an example of a senseless slaughtering. This is not God breaking the sixth commandment or any of his commandments. This is the sovereign God making a choice. And his choices are always right. They're always pure. They're always perfect. But you read the story and you walk away thinking, you know, I, I think God delights in delivering his people. And you're exactly right. He does delight in delivering you. Because when God comes to deliver you from a mess, it must imply that you've gotten to the point of despair where you cry out to him. You're on your backside looking up and you're saying, God, I need you. Only you can help me. See, you can't be delivered and still be arrogantly proud. Only the humble are delivered. And so when God delights in your deliverance, he delights in the lowly. He delights in those that are humble. If you cry out to him, he delights in rescuing you. And maybe there's somebody listening to my voice and you need to be delivered today. You need to be delivered from an addictive behavior. You need to be delivered from a relationship that's gone south. You need to be delivered from a sin that so easily entangles you. You need to be delivered from a mess of your own making or maybe a mess that you didn't make but you find yourself in. And today you just need deliverance. You need for the chains to be loosed. You, you need for your voice to be able to sing a song of praise again. You need for your mind to be set at ease. You need for your heart to rejoice. You need for your soul to leap like a deer. You need to be delivered. You need to be rescued. You need to be helped. You need to be changed. You need deliverance. Friend, God delights in your deliverance. All you have to do is call on him and ask, and he will do it freely, and he'll do it powerfully, and he'll do it effectively. He'll do it perfectly. 
because our God delights in delivering his people. That's what happens in this story. He raised up a judge, Ahud, that left-handed Benjamite, and he was used of God, and the Moabites were put at bay. 10,000 of them were slaughtered. Not one passed over the fords of the Jordan, and the Israelites had peace. They had God's presence, and it lasted for 80 years. But if you were to peek into chapter 4, verse 1, guess what you would read? Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. you got to be kidding me. We're doing this cycle again? Yeah, we're going to do it for about eight weeks. you got to be kidding me. We're going to go from disobedience to discipline to despair to they cry out to the Lord. He delivers them with great joy and mercy, and they delight in him for a period of time. And then we're going to start all over again? Are you kidding me? Why can't we just stay in despair and delight? Despair and delight. Despair and delight. Why do we have to keep going to disobedience and discipline? You answer your own question. Does this describe your life? Far too many times it describes my life. This vicious cycle of disobedience. Doing stuff that you know you're not supposed to be doing. Disobedience to the word of God. And it always leads to discipline because God's children cannot sin successfully. And then you get to the point where you just say, God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Now bless me now, my Savior. I come to you and God delivers you. And he rescues you. And he puts a spring in your step and hope in your heart. And oh, you feel great for a little while until the next opportunity for disobedience rears its ugly head. Friends, I get to the end of this comical story. It's kept me awake, it's kept me on the edge of my seat. I've been intrigued by this story. I hope you've been intrigued by the story too. I come to the end of the story and I think, you know what? Praise God for Ahud, but we need a better Ahud. We need a better judge. We need somebody who's more effective. I mean, Ahud was good, but we need one who's great. We, we need one who can not only bring peace for 80 years. We need somebody who can bring peace for all eternity. We need somebody who is not just gonna take down the idols uh, that we see with our eyes. We need somebody who's gonna take down the idols that are in our hearts. We need somebody who's not just gonna address the sin outside of us. We need a judge who can address the sin on the inside of us. We need somebody who's a better judge than Ahud. And my friend, we've got him. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the righteous judge. Jesus is the glorious redeemer. Jesus is the righteous reconciler. Jesus is the one who helps us when we need help. He's the one who heals us when we need to be healed. He's the one that directs us down the right path. He's the one that searches us, seeks us, and saves us. He is the hound from heaven. He's never lost a patient. He is the great physician. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the bright lily of the valley. He is the bright morning star. This is Jesus. We desperately need Jesus. My faith is found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We need a righteous judge and we've got one. His name is Jesus.
And today all you have to do is cry out to him in trust, in faith, in belief. Is there anybody in a mess? Is there anybody in the midst of disobedience? Is there anybody being disciplined by the Lord? Is there anybody saying, Lord, help me? Friend, if you find yourself shackled in your own sin, if you find yourself in a mess of your own doing or the demise of someone else, today you cry out to the Lord and he will hear you. He will listen. He will answer and he will respond. But in humility, you've got to cry out to him. And he will deliver you and he will delight in that deliverance. So maybe this morning there's somebody here and you need to receive Jesus as Savior. Today, I I invite you to do it. Trust him as your Savior and Lord. Maybe there's somebody here and, and, and you are a believer. You've already done that. You did that many years ago. But you still find yourself on this same roller coaster and you find yourself in the midst of disobedience and discipline and you want to be at the point of despair and delight as he delivers you. And you find yourself saying, Lord, I just need you. And maybe you need to come to the altar, kneel and pray. Maybe you're praying for yourself. Maybe you're praying for somebody else. Maybe you're praying for your spouse. Maybe you're praying for your sibling. Maybe you're praying for a friend who you know is in a tough spot. And right now, you just want to, you just want to go to God on their behalf. We're going to sing a song. I want you to know the altar's open. You come and receive Jesus. You come and pray into the Lord. You come and join this church. Whatever the Lord wants you to do, you do it in this very moment. Because Jesus is the righteous judge. He's the Savior who always satisfies. He's the Messiah who delights in delivering you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. We ask for your help. We ask for your healing. We ask for your strength. Lord, if there's one here who doesn't know you, let today be the day of salvation. If there's one here in need of prayer, let them fall at the altar of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.